The Heinemann Podcast presents a new six-week series. Of all the tools available to the classroom teacher to mitigate anxiety and relieve depression in students, writing is a powerful one. Over 200 research studies since the late 80s have reported that expressive writing especially can improve people's physical and emotional health. So how does writing do this? And what can I do as a classroom teacher to position my students to take this verbal medicine, as author Barry Lane calls it? Join me, Liz Prather, on the Heinemann Podcast each week starting April 4th as we learn about the healing power of writing. Hi, I'm Steph from Heinemann, and today on the podcast, we're joined by Arlene Kazmir and Alex Vanette as they discuss the ethos of trauma-informed teaching practices. They explore the community-building power of trauma-informed teaching, common misunderstandings, and how to start the work with ourselves. Both Arlene and Alex are educators and authors with vast backgrounds in healing-centered education. They recently co-wrote a piece for the Heinemann blog called Slowing Down for Ourselves and Our Students, which we invite you to read. Arlen and Alex began their conversation by examining the value and necessity of slowing down. Hi, Arlen. Hi, Alex. I'm so excited to be with you. I'm excited to talk with you as well. I always love when we talk, and it was fun writing with you. What made you interested in writing about slowing down together? Well, I think about the piece that we did together in the Change the World, you know, the social plan, the social plan book for change. And I was just thinking about that piece and just so many things that we've done together in this work and how our paths crossed pre-pandemic and how we were being invited to rise to the occasion to use the wisdom and the knowledge and research from our experiences to support educators. And I thought, this is exactly who I want to work with. This is exactly who I want to talk with. And I think about that piece that we did where we talked about, you know, we're all in the same storm, but we're not in the same boat. And to, and it's so important for us to feel our feelings and to really consider self-preservation. And I thought, you know, we could take this a little further by considering slowing down. And I just remember sitting in my kitchen one day, actually slowing down, having tea as I was talking to you. And we just started sharing stories about what we were integrating from our previous experiences as trauma-informed teachers to the current times that we're existing in now. And slowing down seemed like the perfect way to invite teachers and educators to do the same thing. It seemed like the lesson that we had both learned in our respective roles as teachers. Yeah, and I think in that, the piece you're referring to is in the plan book for the, um, called Planning to Change the World. And I remember you saying this sentence about feeling is healing. And I think that that's part of the seeds for this idea of slowing down is you can't heal from trauma while you're still rushing through the experience of it. And something I really value about you and something that I learned from you is that I know you consider yourself and name yourself as a healer. 
And for me, in my background in trauma-informed practice, I often am really focused on the trauma part and not the healing part. And I think part of that is a function of, you know, there's an urgency in trauma-informed work, right? Because so many students and so many teachers are hurting. And in my work, at least, I tend to focus on let's look at that hurt and let's make sure we understand how to show up for it and be responsive to it and prevent it and all that kind of stuff. But I don't always focus as much on the healing piece of trauma-informed practice. And something I really have learned from you is how integral that is. And so to me, slowing down is that almost that first step that you have to do in order to access healing practices. And it's really, I think why I wanted to write about it was it's really hard for me. Um, And so I felt like almost by us talking about it and writing about it, it forced me to do the thing that we were suggesting that other people do. And so it it felt almost like a nice uh, embodied writing practice in that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I mean, I think one of the interesting things about healing is that people don't tell you that sometimes the healing hurts more than the trauma. It hurts more than the blow itself, right? And to and when I think about healing, there's so much slowing down involved with that, right? Like when you have an injury and you have to sit with it. And so many of us are suffering from the emotional, mental, and spiritual injuries of this time of these times. And I have I feel like I've been spending this whole entire pandemic healing. But what's really powerful about this healing process is something that, you know, Dr. Gloria Latson Billing said to me when I said, I don't know if that could go on. She said, we're always healing because we're always acquiring wounds. And so like mm. the big kid in me said, so we're like out here like Wolverine, you know, <laughs> that was the big kid um, in me, like just seeing us as like some form of like X-Men that like are just, or X, I saw I was seeing myself as like a, a woman with an X in the replacing the E for, you know, an X and thinking, okay, I'm always healing. It'll come back. But more seriously, I think healing is such a process that involves transforming the trauma, transmuting the trauma. And finding ways to integrate it, whether it's that process of us sitting down to actually slow down and, you know, write, you know, about slowing down, knowing like, what's different about us? We're in the pandemic with everyone else. You know, the only thing that's different is that we've been thinking about this trauma before the pandemic. We were thinking about trauma-informed teaching before it was a buzzword. That's what's different about us. So we were doing that in a work. And I think the healing work is, you know, something that we can all think about. And it's not, I don't see it as a progression, if that makes sense. Like, I'm more so seeing it like some teachers are going to school and then having to go back and teach virtually, going to school. And to me, that's like the trauma and the healing. It's like, okay, how do I build, rebuild community with kids when they're present? How do I like go back home and set up the room that I want to work in around my family? Like that's so traumatic. And there's like this 
healing process that has to happen to even be able to show up for yourself and for others as you do that. And I just think about all the ways we are navigating trauma and healing at these times. And I've learned so much from you as well. And I've learned so much about the ways that we can not only educate people about the psychological implications of trauma on educators, as well as the ways that we as educators cause harm to our students and how to be more equitable in our trauma-informed instruction. You know, I've learned a lot about how you're teaching that to people. And I have so much respect for the ways that you are going about that work. And it just makes me think as we continue this work, like I am really trying to bring in that piece of healing and have us think about healing in trauma responsive work. That to be responsive to trauma is to heal, is a commitment to heal, a commitment to restore one's wholeness, a commitment to reject Mm. being broken. And it's, uh, anyway, you were about to say something. Um, I'm excited to read in the transcript what you just said, because that was deep and I liked it. And uh, (laughs) that it's a being trauma responsive is a commitment to reject being broken. Is that what you just, that was beautiful. Um, what you're saying about healing makes me think about in the, in the piece we wrote, we quoted Trisha Hersey, who is the NAP Bishop of the NAP ministry. And she advocates rest as a form of healing and as a form of pushing back against oppressive systems. And what you're saying about healing and trauma makes me think of something that she shared recently on social media about the power of holding two different truths at the same time. And that when we can hold two different truths at the same time can be transformative. And it makes me think about what you're saying with healing because, you know, as Dr. Ladson Billing was saying to you, it's not that you experience trauma and then the trauma stops and then you start your healing and then you do healing A to Z and then you're done. (laughs) It's that you're constantly at some part of healing and you're also constantly, maybe not always, but often are at some point of interaction with trauma. And so they exist at the same time. They, you know, the pain and the healing are this are two sides of a coin that you're always holding. And I think that, you know, part of why I sometimes felt resistant to talking about healing and trauma-informed education was that it felt like this really personal thing for students. And I worried about boundaries And I worried about teachers seeing themselves as saviors. And so I didn't want to say like, oh, we can help students heal because I felt like that would make things too muddy. But if you look at trauma and healing as really two aspects of the same, I don't know, just like the same mess of being a person, (laughs) then, then healing practices are part of teaching because all of the mess of being a person is part of teaching. And so I just love that idea of of integrating healing with our full understanding of being trauma responsive. And I love that you mentioned, 
you know, uh, superheroes and healing and slowing down because uh, something I've been thinking a lot about is uh, harnessing slowing down as a superpower. And I've been saying it's it's our sloth magic. Um, and, and I've been really embracing the imagery of the sloth as uh, slow, intentional movements. And I've been appreciating that as just a, a visual to ground me when I need to slow down. And I'm wondering, like, what, it, what do you do when you realize you need to slow down? Like, how do you pull yourself out of the rush when you need to slow down? Well, I love that you include imagery and because that is a part of the work. I think we could certainly bring imagery into it. And I try to write about that in my work and in my book to share strategies with teachers. I mean, that is very Jungian to use imagery as a way to embrace what the subconscious is trying to tell us about our experience. And so like even imagining the sloth and like how the sloth moves and when the sloth moves that way, that is a part of that inner work, like cultivating your inner life that's very restorative and healing. And so for me, when I'm thinking about the type of images that I evoke to really step into slowing down, the snake is what comes up for me. Mm. Because I think about the pain that a snake might feel from shedding its skin, but the necessity of that process and how it emerges, how a snake moves slow and it emerges with this new skin. And that is a transformative process. And so when I have to heal, I turn to the snake as my image. And I grew up terrified of snakes. And somehow that's mm. the image that guides me where I feel this regeneration that's happening, that's letting go. Um, and it's a very healing process for me to like imagine that level of transformation and the necessary slowing down that has to take place for that to happen is what comes up for me. And so when I think about ways like in Brooklyn, New York, that we could invite children to learn nonfiction and consider how to integrate nature into our work, which nature we know is very healing. Children are very connected to animals. Children are very connected to studying animals and which ones they feel connected to, you know, and how we could support them with that and movement and breath work. So I think there's so much healing to be done just by thinking about like, which animal comes to mind for you when you think about slowing down? And what are the traits of that animal? And how does that animal slow down? Like that's that in itself is like a healing practice to go through that because it taps into our subconscious and it allows us to go into our inner well to find within us what we need to heal. Because mm -hmm. a sloth works for you, but a snake resonates with me. But that may not be what resonates for someone else, with someone else, you know? Someone else might see slowing down in a different way. So I think evoking images and symbols to connect with our inner selves and cultivate our inner lives is a powerful practice for healing like in these times. I love that. And I love the idea of doing activities like that with students because, you know, something we wrote about together is that when you are so rushed, you can't even notice what it is that you need. And it makes me think about, you know, I think a lot of teachers are excited about teaching students 
like social emotional strategies or self-regulation strategies, mindfulness, uh, stretching, you know, things you can do with your body, but to even notice that you need to slow down, <laughs> you have to have, you know, it's almost ironic. You have to slow down in order to know you need to slow down in a way. But I like the idea of inviting people to think about things like symbols and imagery or to do just simple checking in for 30 seconds with yourself so that you can then even notice what you need rather than, hey, try this strategy when it may not be what works for you in that moment. And so I, I love the idea of inviting students into that process to find something that works for them. And also I'm now just picturing like that we can make some awesome t-shirts with a snake and a sloth on them or something. I love it. <laughs> I love it. Yes, we could. We can make some awesome images. You know, I, I hear you saying that. And for me, I think what it really is, is the intention and depth around the way we do this work with children and with ourselves, right? It's not like checking off a box, like, oh, it's, you know, 5 p.m., I'm going to slow down now. That's not how it works. Usually, you know you need to slow down because you feel like you can't. And that's, mm -hmm. it's like that irony that you just, when you need to slow down is the time where you feel like if you slow down, everything's going to fall apart. And I think that's the hardest thing to grapple with is the complexity of it. And also the depth of doing this work with kids and with ourselves and carrying that metaphor. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, it's not like, hey, welcome in morning meeting, we're going to pick an animal today. And like, good luck, tomorrow, we'll do a new activity. That's not how it is. It's carrying the metaphor through, right, in the ways that when we teach children about mentor texts, we constantly refer back to those stories. You know, we constantly think about how did that character navigate this issue? And what are we learning about that character? And what was that author's intention? And how will we carry this work, you know, forward in our own work? How will we write with these kinds of intentions? How will we read with this critical lens? And so what I'm saying is that we can invite people to do that with their emotional, with their internal landscape. And we can invite them to share the content of it or the process of it. But that would be very difficult to do if we don't do it for ourselves first. Yes. And, you know, that inner work that I know is such a focus of your work, that inner life of teachers is essential. And I'm making a connection here, too, with, you know, a lot of times in trauma-informed education, people talk about building up children's self-concept, their self-esteem. And something we talked about in our piece together was that slowing down is also political because the system that we're in is trying to get us to rush to profit off of our labor. And oftentimes we are being asked to do more than we actually healthily can. And when we say no, there are very real consequences for people. And so slowing down is sometimes this really political and material choice to say, no, I'm going to resist this environment that you are trying to force me into. And so for kids as well, we can say we want them to slow down, but if we're also giving them 
a participation grade every day and you only get your 10 points today if you participate six times or you're only going to pass this class if you produce X amount of work or your value here is contingent upon, you know, how much you are putting out there or producing all of that, then are we actually saying it's okay to slow down? And so to me, when I hear, you know, in trauma-informed education, building up kids' sense of themselves, part of that is an identity of themselves as an autonomous person with agency who can resist unjust conditions and who who feel empowered to say no and feel empowered to actually slow down. Because slowing down isn't just taking breaths. Slowing down also means, hey, I hear that request you're making of me and no, I'm not going to do it. Um, and that I think is much harder for people to grapple with than just the idea of, you know, taking five minutes for some yoga poses. Absolutely, because it's the integrity of it that could be challenging because it's a commitment to one's own well-being. It's a commitment to your humanity and that of your student in a system that devalues our humanity. And that's a revolutionary act to say, I choose our humanity. I choose, and it, it's, it really is grounded in equity and social justice to slow down and to deliberately make room for your children uh, you know, students to be all of who they are. And, you know, it's sort of like what we wrote in the Change the World plan book. It's like, you can do great things even when you're sad, but you shouldn't have to keep that sadness to yourself or leave the feelings at the door. You know, it's like those scary Pinterest and Instagram <laughs> lessons you see. It's like, oh, we got this paper bag and everybody threw their problems in it and we hung it at the door. And it's like, that is so traumatizing. Well, it's that both and that we were talking about of like celebrating, like something you and I have connected on before is that we've had hard times and grief over the past couple of years. And yet you and I have both done a lot of awesome stuff in the past couple of years too. And it's like holding that thing of like, I did this well, I was sad. I accomplished well, I was sad. And in sometimes I accomplished because I was sad and because I allowed myself to feel. And so it's that thing of saying like, you don't have to toss your problem in the paper bag and throw it away. You can come with your whole self and that's all welcome here. Exactly. And in order for us to be able to do that for kids, as we have learned in our own research and practice, you have to give yourself that grace. And I think that's the big lesson for everyone is like giving ourselves grace so that we could give students grace. And that's a huge part of just slowing down. I've been really struck by just teachers' reflections when they do allow themselves to give themselves that same care that they give to their students you and I have been co-facilitating a community for teachers along with our friends, Rhiannon, Kim, and Addison Duane. And it's a gathering where we come together once a month and we talk about caring for ourselves and caring for our students. And the last couple of times I've been really noticing that just the act of taking an hour and a half on a Sunday afternoon just for themselves to come together in community 
just that act of setting aside that time to slow down has been really powerful. And I know it's even powerful for me as a facilitator as well. I feel like I read one time that just the act of showing up to your therapy appointment, regardless of what you talked about, uh, supported your mental health. (laughs) And it makes me think of that, of slowing down, because it's like that act of choosing to take the time, regardless of even what you do with the time, but just the choice that you made to show up for yourself is so powerful. So glad that you brought that up, that you brought up nurturing the nurturers, because that is the question, like who takes care of the caretakers? How will teachers ever be able to be there for their students if no one's there for them? I mean, we come from school systems where you never learn self-love. I mean, maybe we might read about narcissists and how you shouldn't look in the mirror too long because you just might, I mean, in the water too long, you just might fall in and drown at the obsession with your own reflection. But we're talking about like real self-love that allows you to honor your feelings, respect your boundaries, be honest with yourself about what you're feeling, show up for yourself, show up for your passion, your dreams, no matter how difficult and challenging life is, to believe in yourself, to be determined to turn your wounds into wisdom. These are the kinds of things that are not being taught. And these are the kinds of things that actually make the greatest human stories that we're studying in biographies. Like that's why we read biographies and autobiographies. It's like, how did you do it? How did you overcome all of those obstacles? How did you care for yourself despite the odds? You're making me think of how in English class, you look at like man versus man, man versus nature, man versus self. You study the types of conflict, but you don't study the types of love, right? Or like relationships or look for that caring within text. And yeah, I mean, it just really, that gets to me at the heart of being trauma-informed is making room for all of that human experience, the bad stuff and the good stuff. And slowing down allows you to hold that complexity, right? Like if you're rushing, then you don't have room for complexity. All you have room for is stuff that's really clear, that's black or white, that has, you know, predefined boundaries and bullet points. And slowing down is what allows you to to hold the messiness. And it's what allows you to allow your classroom to be a site for healing because the trauma isn't going away for a long time. We have just begun. Mm-hmm. And anyone who has been in crisis, people in New Orleans are still feeling the effects of Katrina. The trauma is everlasting. So what do you do? And what I've learned is that all indigenous cultures, even in black culture, like what do we know about black people? They have always been healing since they came over here. Those of them who came through the mid-Atlantic slave trade, how else would they survive the atrocity of becoming enslaved and to exist as a people? You know, it's like they're experts in healing. And so I just feel like having classrooms as sites for healing, having spaces where we can continue to heal and studying the ways that different groups of people have survived atrocities and have paid attention to the emerging story of their life in surviving that atrocity. 
and the ways that it continues to impact them for generations. Like the healing isn't new. The trauma isn't new. It just takes different forms, mm-hmm. you know? And I just think that we have our work cut out for us, but there's no better institution than education to do this work because we have children from the tender age of four up until they're like 18. And we don't have enough therapists. So (laughs) cultivating our capacity to hold healing spaces is one of the most equitable things that we could do for this generation. And not only do we have kids from those ages, but we have kids in communities, right? Kids are all together in school, you know, even when we're online, right? We're in groups. And I think so many of those stories of resistance that you're talking about come about through solidarity and collectivism and people working together. And so, you know, when people talk about, we'll build a learning community, do collaborative learning, those are really effective for academics and they're really effective as healing practices and really seeing how building a community of care supports all of what you're talking about. It supports uh, school being a healing place. And I think too, you know, I was saying before that I sometimes worry about boundaries and, oh, are teachers going to feel like they're saviors if they talk about healing? But, you know, you don't ever have to unpack somebody's individual story of trauma in order to have a healing environment. And I think about moments that have felt healing to me, even though I wasn't actually talking about what was wrong, you know, and that could be, you know, cooking a meal for someone that I love or with someone that I love, or it could be sitting with someone and laughing about nothing, or it could be getting really immersed in a project. And all of those things can be really healing because they all slow us down, right? They, they let us exist in the present moment, but they let us, you know, come out of the stress and come out of the rush. And so I think teachers don't need to feel like they have to be therapists in order to provide those moments. And, you know, these things that we've been talking about, about finding these symbols or imagery that are powerful, or looking at the lineage of resistance and healing in your community, those are all things that you can do without being a therapist and what you can do just in your role as a teacher. Absolutely. And I think that in order to like, what I would add to that and yes, and that is in order to be able to create those building a community of care, building a community of love, you actually have to embrace your own humanity. Like that's the big piece. And so I think when we think about the desire to be a savior is a lack of humility, in my opinion. It's a lack of humility because you're in a pandemic too. Who are you saving? And that's what I learned in New Orleans. I was just like, savior? I don't even know how any of us are doing this. And my teaching journey became a healing process because of that. And it was a parallel healing process. Like they're healing, I'm healing. And I'm healing from wounds I didn't even know I had. And for many of us, this pandemic is bringing up so much stuff from our childhood, 
It's bringing up so much stuff from our family lineage. It's bringing up things in our relationships. And that's where we slow down and look at it and witness it so that we are not dissociating with, you know, busy work and all the other things that distract us from ourselves. And then we won't encourage children to do that as well in effort to pretend that we are helping them reach this higher ideal, this pursuit of, you know, excellence and happiness. It's like, we're all hoping to be able to achieve our hopes and dreams and goals. We're all hoping to survive this, you know, like that is the ultimate goal. But instead of the end goal, I think it's the how, like, how are we going about this process? How are we living in this moment? Like I think about during this pandemic, I went through something really traumatic. And I think about how all that mattered to me was being able to show up with a friend for a writing appointment weekly. And that was an anchor for me. And that didn't mean that in those writing appointments that we had to talk about, it wasn't therapy. It was a writing appointment. And sometimes I sat there and wrote through my tears. I wrote through my anger, but I showed up and I wrote. And so I think about those moments where we want to save children. It's as if we want to shelter them from the pain. And I think what this pandemic has done has exposed us all to our vulnerability as human beings and has made us realize that none of us have ever lived through a pandemic let alone, you know, as teachers. And no, none of us know what it's like to be a child learning in a pandemic. And so that should allow us to have humility and ask ourselves, what can the children teach us? Because that's the healing when we realize everyone is a teacher and everyone is a student. And we have a lot to learn from how the children are surviving this moment. And when you shift to that way of seeing things, you realize I'm as much of a student as they are teachers. And how could I then be a savior to anyone? Mm -hmm. Well, and what you're saying too is that being a savior, it lacks humility, but it also denies us a piece of our humanity. And it is shutting off the part of us that needs help and needs to be cared for and needs to break down that dichotomy of the healer versus the person needing healing. And so if you take that both and, right, the holding two truths together, then you say, my students are healers, and they also need healing. And I am a healer, and I also need healing. But I think that's really scary. <laughs> I think it's scary, right? I know for me, sometimes, you know, you were talking about showing up to your writing appointment, I was thinking about this spring and fall showing up to teach my Zoom class at the community college and sort of, you know, I was sitting in this chair and, and opening up my laptop and, and just sort of putting on my game face a lot of days. And that probably cut me off a little bit from being open to that reciprocal relationship with students. But I think part of it is that it's really scary for teachers to say, I need help, I need care because of this system that so many many of us are in where our schools, our administration don't treat us like people who need care, don't treat us like people who need support. 
it just makes me think of how big and complex all these issues are. But then I come back to just the power of showing up for each other and the power of finding the connections that you need, even if they're not the ones that you wish you had. (laughs) And I know that part of what's been helpful for me during the pandemic is slowing down to focus on those relationships that I do have and reminding myself of the care and the love that does exist, even when it feels really overwhelming, everything that's going on, uh, slowing down and noticing, right? Just noticing what is already around me. Absolutely. And as you were talking, it was making me think about how important it is to always create a shared pool of meaning, because perhaps like when we start talking now that as teachers, we need to see ourselves as healers or the fact that I see myself as a healer and to ask one, what is that? Like, what, what, what is a healer? What does it mean to be a healer? Because that could easily become synonymous with savior right? And actually, a healer is just someone, in my definition, that is transparent and authentic about the process of healing. Not in a way that's trauma dumping, but declaring that I'm actively healing. And if we were to see it like an onion, it's like, I peeled some layers off and I'm over here while you're peeling your layers off. And maybe, just maybe, I have one more layer peeled than you. But it's someone who activates, you know, when we think about triggering, I don't, I prefer not to use that word of a trigger and I see it as an activation. So like when someone activates a a transformation that's happening for you, Like the fact we've all, it's happened in books, it happens in conversations. Someone just says something striking and it changes you. But what has allowed that person to say that striking thing? It's their experience and the way that they are taking what they're learning and making meaning of it. And so it makes me think a lot about Marianne Williamson. She says that, Our souls crave meaning in the same way that our bodies crave oxygen. And so a healer is someone who found the meaning in their experience and invites you to find the meaning in your own. And that in some ways is just describing teaching, which is really beautiful because, I mean, so many of us, right, we get into teaching because we found meaning in the content or in our area and we want to help students make meaning. So that's, it's just really beautiful that healing and teaching in that way are sort of bound up in each other. I think we could talk about this for many more hours, but I think as we wrap up our conversation, I'm just sitting with, I'm sitting with the sloth and the snake and the onion and, (laughs) and just carrying all those symbols with me as I'm going to try to slow down and continue slowing down. And I so appreciate any time we get to talk. Me too. Thank you for being here. Our thanks to Arlen and Alex for their time today. You can learn more about their work on the Heinemann blog and by following them on Twitter. You can find Arlen at Arlen Casimir and Alex at Alex S. Binet. The Heinemann Podcast is a production of Heinemann Publishing. It is produced and edited by Steph George sound mixing by Steph George. Our creative producer is Lauren Audette. 
And our executive producer is me, Brett Whitmarsh. To learn more about the Heinemann Podcast, visit blog.heinemann.com. Thanks for listening. 